This is the ACR 2023 Daily Podcast. Here you'll listen to faculty recordings, discussions, and interviews taken from the ACR Convergence Meeting in San Diego. I hope you enjoy this recording. Hello, I'm Anthony Chan uh, from London, United Kingdom, and I'm here at ACR 23, reporting for Room Now, and there have been very interesting presentations today. And today I want to focus in the area of cardiovascular risks, in particular in rheumatoid arthritis. We know that in rheumatoid arthritis, there is at least a one and a half times increase cardiovascular risk in terms of major cardiovascular events or cardiovascular mortality uh, compared to the normal population. And so how have this evolved here at the ACR 23? There are two important abstracts from uh, today. Firstly, it's 0387 by Weber. And this looked at the, um, the use of our highly sensitive um, uh, um, CRP measurements and to see whether these um, uh, correlated with, uh, with the outcome of patients and also using the highly uh, sensitive um, troponin as well. So when they looked at the aspect of um, the troponin measurements and these are uh, measure of uh, myocardial uh, uh, damage, uh, they, they looked at two groups. Firstly, the people who had uh, high CRP at the beginning of disease and then over time on the treatment they became low CRP and on the reverse people who had low CRP at the beginning and then subsequently had high CRP and they found that uh, in patients who had the high uh, CRP going to the low C, uh, CRP had an increased cardiovascular risk and this correlated with the presence of troponin uh, measurements in, in the blood and so they concluded that the, the use of troponin uh, could be another measure that we could use in order to assess our patients with uh, rheumatoid arthritis in terms of finding out their cardiovascular risk on top of the traditional cardiovascular uh, factors that we know that we use uh, for, for these patients. So uh, perhaps another marker that we could add into our cardiovascular risk assessment for our patients with rheumatoid arthritis. The second abstract uh, is 391 by Kapuzos uh, and colleagues, and this is about the, um, the use of uh, biologic therapies uh, and whether they made an impact in terms of the cardiovascular risks longer term. And these patients were followed um, up to 15 years, uh, and this was part of the International Cardiovascular Consortium. Uh, and they had um, many patients, um, over 4,000 old patients recruited into this study. And the, um, the incidence was uh, to look at the incidence of uh, major cardiovascular events and any ischemic cardiovascular events over a period of time measured in terms of patient years. The main findings from this study was that in patients who were on biological therapies, uh, they had a better clinical outcome. There was a reduction in their major cardiovascular events and also uh, any ischemic cardiovascular events compared to the non-biologic groups, patients who are not treated with biologics. And again, this, is a, this tells us that uh, there, is a, there is a positive effect, a protective effect on the use of, um, of such therapies to reduce the cardiovascular risk in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. In, uh, in further analysis, it wasn't just the reduction in the disease activity score, the DAS28, uh, or the inflammation level that conferred the protection. There was also an added benefit that probably came from... Uh, they consider other factors such as stabilization of the coronary artery plaques, for example, additional uh, protective factors from the use of biologics beyond the traditional uh, reduction in just the inflammation levels. 
So I think from these two uh, studies today, firstly, um, assessing our patients using new tools such as the um, troponins uh, to measure um, cardiovascular risk on top of our standard cardiovascular risk assessment. And secondly, uh, with a more aggressive treatment of the condition um, and also seeing the um, added benefit of our biologic therapies in terms of reducing cardiovascular deaths uh, and risk for our patients. So, so two important studies from uh, ACR23 today. Thank you. Hello, this is I'm Anthony Chan uh, from London, United Kingdom, and I'm here at uh, ACR23 uh, reporting for Room Now. And today we've had some really interesting presentations here at uh, ACR23. And I'm uh, together with my guest, uh, Dr. Arvin Maruf from the University of Kurdistan Haula yeah. and uh, she has done some very interesting work as part of a multinational study looking at the concordance between what patients report and what the physicians uh, assess uh, their patients to do. So I wonder whether, first of all, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, if you could tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing yeah. in, in particular poster number 0506. 0506 yes. So uh, the work is part of the uh, like bigger uh, project which is the tactic which is uh, uh, first started uh, by translating the uh, PSA uh, uh, questionnaires to Arabic in order to validate it for our uh, uh, like uh, uh, people in the Arab countries because this project is part of the uh, Arlar uh, project group which is ARCH and it's orchestrated by uh, Dr. Nili Ziada. So this project uh, aimed to uh, find if the concordance of patient and uh, the physician about the uh, disease activity is similar uh, to what found in the uh, Europe and North America that there is uh, discordance between uh, the two. So in this uh, study, we uh, in the routine visit, we. Uh, uh, like we checked the uh, both patient and physician um, global assessment uh, also cor correlated it with the demographic uh, factors uh, also questionnaires about the disease um, uh, like the health uh, assessment and the disability the uh, uh, the fibromyalgia um, rapid uh, scoring tool also have been considered and uh, then we correlated all of these and the, uh, the end result was that the concordance between patient and physician assessment uh, was strong, <laughs> like it was 84.4% uh, with a uh, little lower, uh, like 12% for the uh, positive concord uh, discordance and 2.4% for the uh, negative discordance. That is uh, really uh, very encouraging because one of the things that we are trying to do is trying to uh, use some of these assessments globally and a lot of the data that we have so far comes from Europe and uh, North America so this is a very welcome uh, study uh, where these assessments are done in different cultures and even in different languages. Yes, were there some challenges in, in uh, making these assessments when you were doing it in the study? Sure, uh, there are some challenges related to the uh, uh, 
to the visits of the patients and also um, uh, some uh, thing related to their um, CRP um, high level and the uh, other uh, uh, demographic uh, uh, change that affect uh, could affect the the uh, the uh, results. And those cases with fibromyalgia, you know the pain uh, uh, measures and the, uh, it will be also affected uh, at this time. Um, other challenge was, um, you know, this study is of 13 country and it is unselected patients, uh, cross-sectional. And uh, it was both challenging and uh, also like uh, an achievement to gather all of these uh, uh, nations and uh, centers together in one project. So as a start, as a kickoff, was a bit challenging, but then it went smoothly. Yes, um, the literature suggests that there is still uh, a discordance between what the patients perceive as being very important yeah. and what the physician or the assessor thinks is important. But increasingly, we are seeing that they, they are seeming to come together. Exactly. In your study, it was uh, 84%. And certainly, we have also presented today in an adjacent poster of yeah. our use of PSA-12, yeah. which is an assessment tool that the patients can complete, and the in-house clinical assessment by the physician, mm. looking at attendance, well and joint count, and found, again, strong positive correlation. So do we feel that it is because there is more awareness both on the physician and patient aspect on these assessments yeah. uh, or do we feel that um, um, we are just getting better in, uh, in uh, using these assessment tools and therefore we are seeing less of a discordance? Exactly and you know for psoriatic arthritis we have the skin and joint part. So uh, sometimes the, uh, the patient is complaining uh, because of the skin while the joint is good. So uh, maybe uh, that as, as a patient global assessment will give a high measure uh, just because of the skin manifestation, not because of the joint manifestation. And that will be also an eff uh, affecting the, the, uh, the results. And um, also, you know, it's uh, this concordance between the patient and uh, a physician will affect also the uh, decision making for the patient and adherence of the patient to the treatment. So uh, if we are uh, thinking about a patient-centered uh, 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 like treatment, then this is a very important factor, uh, I believe. So we have to consider it for both, both, both parties or both exactly. sides. Exactly. And this yeah. is where the, the whole concept of shared decision making yeah. comes into play. And if we believe that if we can do shared decision making better, yeah. I'm sure it'll improve the adherence and also the compliance exactly, uh, of yeah. the patient long term. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Are there anything else you want to add before we uh, uh, well, you know, talk about? Thank your you very much for this opportunity, and I was privileged to present that poster in in, in, in behalf on behalf of my colleagues. Yeah, and I'm enjoying the ACR as well. Thank you very much, and uh, thanks very much. Uh, uh, Dr. Maruf for joining us today and talking to Thank you about you. a very big multinational um, assessment that also gives us a lot of insight beyond a cross-boundary in terms of cross-cultures and cross-countries as well. Thank yeah. you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you too. 
Hi, everybody. It's uh, Mike Putman from the Medical College of Wisconsin reporting to you from ACR Convergence 23 for Room Now. I'm excited to be here, and I'm talking about one of the most important sessions that I saw today, which was the presentation of the recommendations or the ACR guidelines for interstitial lung disease that were presented at one of the morning sessions. Now, I found this very interesting, and Room Now has been covering a lot of this already. Myself and Dr. Conway have already put out a couple pieces, but the thing that I wanted to focus on today were how they define people at high risk of developing interstitial lung disease. Now that's very important because the guidelines recommend screening with pulmonary function testing and high-res CT scans for such patients. Now when we first saw it, I said that sounds like they're going to be recommending a whole lot of people and today we know a little bit more about what they meant. Now first, I think they were pretty reasonable. They did say that we're not saying you have to screen these people, but we wanted to tell you that these folks are at an elevated risk. Now things got a little bit wonky from there. For inflammatory myopathies, such as myositis, I actually think they're their population they identify as quite good as people with the antisynthetase syndrome, people with MDA5 positivity. I am doing screening for interstitial lung disease for pretty much all of those patients already and would, would endorse that practice. Now things get a little bit wonkier as you go down the list. So for patients with systemic sclerosis, they identify people with SCL70, diffuse subtype, and early in disease, the first five to seven years. Now. I am screening a lot of those people already, so I think some of that's reasonable. But these guidelines, to me, essentially boil down to a recommendation to screen almost everyone who's being newly diagnosed with systemic sclerosis. Now, I've already talked about this a little bit, but when you get to rheumatoid arthritis, I think this, things get a little bit more complicated. They say people with a high RF, a high CCP antibody, smoking, older age, high disease activity, male sex, and higher BMI. That is not everyone, but it's pretty darn close. And I'm not routinely screening all patients with rheumatoid arthritis at this point. So I think that on balance, the, the recommendations did a reasonably good job for some diseases. For myositis, I absolutely think people who have antisynthetase syndrome or MDA5 deserve a CT scan and probably pulmonary function testing at baseline. For rheumatoid arthritis and Sjogren's syndrome, which was also recommended for everyone who had seropositivity, I think that this is a little bit aggressive, and I think you're going to find a lot of people which will ultimately wind up in overdiagnosis and potentially overtreatment. So it's going to be an interesting time sussing out how these apply to clinical practice, but overall a very big endeavor and one that I'm excited to have something to talk about. So thanks again for tuning into Room Now. Uh, we'll be reporting for the rest of the meeting as well. Have a great day, everyone. Hi, Room Now. I am Dr. Rachel Tate coming to you from ACR 2023 in beautiful San Diego, California. And I have the pleasure of talking about everything that's new in 2023 with my dear friend, Dr. Alexis Ogdi. So Alexis, first, how's your ACR going? So far, so good. Fun to see all the faces. And San Diego's a great place to have the ACR. I totally agree. But we're East Coasters, so we can say that. Yeah, exactly. So tell me, what's new in our field of spondyloarthritis? What do you find really salient this year? Yeah, so if I even just think about the trials that are being presented this time. So we have two trials of IV secukinumab. So, you know, obviously the data is not surprising. Secukinumab works compared to placebo in psoriatic arthritis and spinal arthritis. But the nice thing is that IV secukinumab is now available. Yeah. So I think that having a dosing regimen and having that available, especially for our Medicare patients, bleh, and, uh, and then also, though, for our patients who are obese. So, yes. you know, we often see that drug kind of wearing off, and so it would be nice to really dose that by body weight now. So. so I actually didn't think about that as being an additional feather in its cap, but I do think that's really important. Yeah. It's access to, though. We have to yeah. be able to get it. Exactly. 
So that's one. Um, new TIC2 inhibitor being presented, uh, TAC279, doesn't even have a name yet, and it's a phase two study in psoriatic arthritis. And it looks very similar to Ducravacitinib, so at least there'll be another uh, TIC2 inhibitor coming. So Ducravacitinib still approved for psoriasis, not yet PSA, still waiting for that phase three. Yep. But at least we have a new class coming and ga gathering more data around that. Good. Now that's awesome. And then third, we have the foremost trial. So another new trial, new patient population in psoriatic arthritis. So this is a sub, uh, subset of patients with psoriatic arthritis with oligoarticular disease. Okay. So first trial in oligoarticular disease, helping us understand how to study this population and maybe the role for where a primal should be used. Now, you participated in foremost, did you not? Uh, only as in reviewing data and providing right. input. But that's important, right? We need to have the context to build the story for our patients. No, I really appreciate it. I love being here in San Diego, and I love being here with you. Thank you so much. <laughs> as always, but you know me. So, um, and, and check us out on roomnow.com for this and more information, and we will be happy to tell you about anything spa-related and PSA-related as we continue on at ACR 2023. Hi, everyone. It's Aurélie I am super excited to be with, uh, there with you today in San Diego for the first day of ACR, and um, yeah, already saw quite a few really cool abstracts, and one of them I wanted to talk to you about is abstract 0746. The reason why I thought it was cool is because I use ultrasound a lot in my practice, and see, I see a lot of PSA patients in my clinics, and I scan them, and you know, I see a lot of patients that have very specific ultrasound features, um, and I'm, I've always been wondering how does that correlate with the clinical outcomes? And so these studies, the authors were really interesting in trying to understand that, and so they recruited prospectively 135 patients, which is quite a consequent number when you think of all um, the different features they've been assessing with ultrasound and so they've been looking at synovitis, entosiitis, um, tenosynovitis, peritendonitis. So you're going to ask me what's the difference between those? Well actually, you know, uh, peritendonitis are those um, features that you see around the tendon when there's no tendon sheath. So it's pretty similar to tenosynovitis but um, they also looked at newborn formation and erosions. And so um, First of all, they found really kind of basic correlations that are reassuring. You know, there if you have more ultrasound synovitis, it's correlated with having a higher joint count. Well, that swollen joint count, well, that makes sense. Um, and if you have more ultrasound antithesitis, you do have a higher antithesitis score clinically, which again makes sense. However, um, it was a bit disappointing for a few of the features, unfortunately. And one of them was they couldn't find any features that was specifically a associated with reaching uh, DAP cellular disease activity, um, but those patients who did have higher number of synovitis, higher number of anxieties, so more kind of inflammatory type phenotype, um, did, uh, were most likely to um, have a greater reduction of, of their DAPSA. Um, and also they did multivariate analysis to see how these parameters would correlate with, you know, disease um, outcomes uh, and outcome measures. And again, so, you know, those who had more ultrasound synovitis would have a higher reduction in pain. Those who had a higher newborn formation uh, on ultrasound would have a higher CRP. Um, those who had uh, tenosynovitis or peritendonitis um, did have a higher reduction of swollen joint count. So generally speaking, what does that tell us? 
Well, it doesn't tell us much. I was really disappointed, you know, because I saw I was going to figure it out and, and, and I didn't. And I think, you know, this is telling us a few things. First of all, either ultrasound, you know, features do not help to define clinical phenotypes and predict disease course, or maybe we could try to correlate them with um, outcome measures that are composite and therefore you know, it's going to be really difficult um, to find a way to, to, to do that. So more research is needed to understand uh, what these phenotypes are and how they correlate with uh, disease outcome. This was Aurelinage from Glasgow here in San Diego. Tune on rumnow.com for more content and follow me on Twitter at Aureliroimo. Hello, I'm Jonathan Kay from UMass Chan Medical School in Worcester, Massachusetts, reporting for Room Now from ACR Convergence 2023. I'm here in San Diego on this first day of the meeting, and I was impressed by Abstract 0423, which was a poster about CAR-T reg cell therapy in rheumatoid arthritis. CAR-T cells are now all the buzz for the treatment of lupus and other systemic autoimmune disease, but we've not heard a lot about CAR-T cells for rheumatoid arthritis. In this poster, the presenters developed a CAR-T reg cell directed against citrullinated antigens that are present in serum and synovial fluid of patients with rheumatoid arthritis. They looked for these citrullinated proteins in synovial fluid of patients with rheumatoid arthritis and individuals without rheumatoid arthritis, as well as in serum from patients with or without rheumatoid arthritis. And they found that there was reactivity with these citrullinated antigens in 84% of synovial fluids from rheumatoid arthritis patients and 48% of serum samples. Now, it's very interesting that in rheumatoid arthritis, proteins such as fibronectin are elevated in concentration compared to serum. The concentration of fibronectin in rheumatoid synovial fluid is threefold elevated above that in matched serum samples. So citrullination of proteins like fibronectin may be a prevalent component of synovial fluid and could be a target for CAR-T regulatory cell therapy. CAR-T cells directed against synovial antigens are a very promising way of treating rheumatoid arthritis, especially given that the presence of these citronated antigens correlated with markers of disease activity, namely elevated levels of serum interleukin-6 and C-reactive protein. This treatment option for rheumatoid arthritis is just in the early stages of development, but I look forward to seeing clinical trials of these CAR-T regulatory cells in rheumatoid arthritis. This proves to be a very good potential therapy for autoimmune diseases such as lupus and holds promise for rheumatoid arthritis as well. I'm Jonathan Kay, reporting for Room Now from ACR Convergence 2023 in San Diego. Stay tuned for more reports from ACR Convergence 2023 on Room Now. See you again soon.